should I redesign my program? I've been in arts for so long. I've been in social housing for so long. Should I all of a sudden redirect my programs into health or into COVID-19 in refugee camps? Is this what I have to do? Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listeners know, the purpose of the Do One Better podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy the show. Please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we're talking about venture philanthropy and how it's maneuvering in light of COVID-19. And it is an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Stephen Cerniels, who is the CEO of the European Venture Philanthropy Association, or EVPA. He's a uh, social business angel, I guess would be a, a fairly good description. And he's joining me from continental Europe. I'm here in London. We're both locked down because of COVID-19. And we're going to have a good conversation today. Stephen, welcome on to the Do One Better podcast. It's, uh, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, Alberto. Likewise. Great. Well, look, let's uh, let's start off a little bit by hearing about EVPA, the European Venture Philanthropy Association. Tell us a little bit about what it's all about. About 15, 16 years ago, a couple of uh, venture capitalists, five actually venture capitalists in London came together and they were puzzled about the fact that on the one hand, there was philanthropy but if they took a deep dive, they found out it was not very entrepreneurial. And they could see that venture capitalists on the, were quite entrepreneurial and were innovative. But then again, they were not contributing to society. Mm-hmm. So they had this idea of why can we not blend venture capital assets with philanthropy assets? And hence, they coined the term of uh, venture philanthropy. Big question is, after 15 years, how do we define venture philanthropies? Because there are numerous uh, terms out there. Uh, some call it uh, entrepreneurial or engaged philanthropy uh, or catalytic philanthropy. But uh, we at EVPA like to think about it uh, along three dimensions. Okay. First dimension is that um, giving is good, but it's even better if you can start measuring your results if you know what you're after. And there is a whole terminology about uh, outcomes and outputs and impact, but in essence it is uh, don't just um, be happy when you give money, you support processes, uh, only really get happy when you see results and measure those results. That's one key dimension. The second thing is that they realize that as in venture capitalism, you also have to go beyond the money. Uh, You can provide money, but besides the money, you should attribute as much and even sometimes more time and energy in non-financial support, which could be opening your network, supporting the founder, uh, organizational resilience, capacity building, and so on and so forth. So that's absolutely a second important uh, dimension. And the third one is that, and I'll come back to that in a minute, is, and that's different from venture capitalists, is we tend to see the financial instrument as a mean to an end. So we tailor the financial instrument towards the impact we want to create. 
which means that to a certain extent we are agnostic about the type of financial instrument you use. Mm -hmm. Some social challenges are better off with grants, and we still believe that grant making is a good thing to do. Again, if you measure outcomes and results and so on and so forth, but grants is still a powerful instrument. But next to that, you can also start to invest equity loans and hence impact investing. So we're a bit agnostic about the financial tool, but it should suit the purpose. So tailored financing is a third important uh, uh, element of uh, venture philanthropy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're active in about 30 countries, perhaps, and you have over 300 members. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we are on uh, what we call an ecosystem builder. So in Europe, uh, we try to kind of create this movement uh, with uh, research, with member-driven services, um, with uh, peer group convenings, all the usual stuff. But we are also uh, truly recognized as ecosystem builder uh, because uh, the European Commission for now seven years mm -hmm. is supporting us in making sure that we are the go-between between foundations social investment funds, uh, grant makers on the one hand, and the European Commission that is shaping certain instruments to serve that market. Mm -hmm. And we try to uh, bring the voice of the market to the European Commission and at the same time help the European Commission to create clarity and transparency on all the financial resources that are available at European level for our members if they want to invest in social entrepreneurs, in NGOs, or in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And who are your members? I mean, what, what's the, the typical profile, if there is one, of an EVPA member? Typical profile is because we're a European organization, so we do have uh, some people in local countries, but we are truly a pan-European cross-national organization. So uh, most of the time we uh, see that foundations that have uh, an aspiration and a mandate to go beyond their national borders or they're very strong uh, in their nation but want to kind of link up with peers in other nations in Europe, these type of foundations typically come to us. And I always say if I talk to uh, the different nations, whether it's UK, France, Germany, whatever, we are interested in your top five foundations that are active in your country because those top five, they have a dual responsibility. They most of the time lead the pack in their own country, but at the same time, they want to link up with peers from other countries. Mm -hmm. So these are the foundations. Then we have the social investment funds. Uh, they use most of the time different instruments, equity instruments, and they go into impact investing. And again, uh, in the beginning, they might have been a bit local, but in order to source their pipeline and reach out to the best social enterprises throughout Europe, team up with accelerators and incubators, they also tend to have a, a cross-border international perspective. And those two foundations and social innovation funds are at the heart of our membership. Mm -hmm. And then you have a couple of what we call um, organizations that are more on the demand side of resources, whether these are social enterprises, NGOs, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, that is another group. And a third group is academia, consultants, public players, uh, policymakers that are part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. 
can individual philanthropists also join you or is it for organizations uh, to join EVPA? That's a very good point, uh, Alberto. We started indeed with uh, focusing on organizations, but uh, with the whole evolution that happened, I would say, over the last 10 years, uh, the last three years, we became very uh, open and, and also to a certain extent focused on uh, high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, because they have also, well, two things. First of all, they have the spirit of entrepreneurship very often. Mm -hmm. They have really this intention to create um, societal goods and societal benefit, and they do have sizable assets under management. So that combination uh, makes them also an important player in this space since a couple of years. Right, great. And tell me, so as I pointed out at the start of the show, you're in your house with this COVID-19 lockdown and, and likewise here on my side. How are your members, how is the venture philanthropy space maneuvering in light of COVID-19 and truly unprecedented times? Yeah. Well, they're truly unprecedented, so it's a bit uncharted territory for us as well. Mm. Uh, but the last couple of weeks have been uh, super intensive uh, because we have a peer group on foundations, a peer group on social investment funds, peer groups on, on social enterprises, on corporate foundations. And little by little, we start to see uh, certain patterns. And, and maybe before I go there, how we start to see this whole pandemic, Alberto, is mm -hmm. in three phases. First phase is what we call the survival phase. You have just to make sure uh, that you survive. I was in contact with a social enterprise uh, just the other day, and if they don't find liquidity for the next uh, in the next three weeks, they're just dead. It's right. Over. Um, so that's what we call the survival phase. Then there's going to be the revival phase. Probably the next, we guess, six to 18 months because of all the economics and going back to almost normal will take quite some time. And the third phase is the building resilience phase that if this happens again, it probably will happen again in one or another way that we're much better prepared. So we see those three phases and we have a big sister organization in Asia and they're about, I would say, two, three months ahead of the curve. Mm. They're right now, little by little, they have uh, big Chinese members, little by little, they start thinking about the revival phase. Here in Europe, we're still in the survival phase, and our sisters and brothers in Latin and, and, and in Africa, where we also have a network, they're awaiting the survival phase. They are kind of waiting what comes over them, but they are not yet in the full turmoil than we are in, 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 in Europe. Coming back to your question, uh, what we see, the, the questions, and I don't yet have answers, but the questions that foundations are struggling with are the following. Mm -hmm. um, should I redesign my program? I've been in arts for so long. I've been in social housing for so long. Um, should I all of a sudden redirect my programs into health or into COVID-19 in refugee camps? Is this what I have to do? Big question. Second question I hear them struggling is, look, I was giving grants and, and, and most of our members on a long term venture philanthropy based, uh, which is patient capital, five to seven years. 
But they come back and they see that their members are struggling, as I was giving the example, with a liquidity issue. So it's fine to give non-financial support and long-term grants, but if they're struggling with liquidity, they need something else. So they're also kind of rethinking what financial support they should give in the survival phase. Mm-hmm. And the third element, which I very often uh, hear, and again with a couple of uh, big foundations in Europe, I had uh, some talks uh, a few days ago, and yeah, their endowment also might get a major hit. Yeah. And, and if their endowment gets a major hit, their program for this year might be safe. But what happens with the money to be spent next year and the year thereafter? So that's a more structural question. Uh, how are the proceeds from the endowment going to be used? And if they going to go down, uh, what can I still promise? So these are what we see uh, foundations are struggling with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are there some um, some answers beginning to to come to the to the surface out of these questions that you're able to uh, to discern? And I'll give you an example. So, for instance, I know here in the UK, uh, exactly as you're pointing out, a lot of the foundations are mobilizing to try to help the third sector, the, the charities in the UK to survive at this really challenging time and um, and some of the key things that seem to come up in terms of their thinking are about possibly uh, repurposing an existing grant perhaps where beha- that where that grant may have been restricted initially now they're thinking well let me uh, take the restrictions of it so that the grantee is able to deploy those funds for Core, core funding, for instance. There are things like that, sort of creative thinking that seems to be coming up. And I'm curious, with your very vast membership base, whether you're beginning to see some of that sort of stuff coming up as well. That's a good, um, good point and good example, Alberto. What we see happening definitely is that there is even a kind of um, request kind of statement uh, we launch towards our members that at least they should become more relaxed in the short term about uh, repayments or uh, reporting um, or um, anything that normally would be part of, uh, I would say, a rigorous management of your grant. So we should indeed open up a little bit where and when and how to use the money and how to go about the, the, the thinking and the reporting of all of that. That's a clear tendency, becoming more relaxed because it's needed now and not kind of discussed too long uh, and too heavy about it. Where I see still uh big differences and probably depending on uh, the origin of the foundation is if you're a community foundation, uh, you tend to step in this COVID thing uh, 100%, the full Monty, because uh, you have to take care of the community. So if the community is caring about healthcare workers or uh, home violence and these kind of things, then you go there. They're used to go with the needs of the community. But there are other type of foundations that have a different origin where the founder once had a mission 
on uh, education for small children, uh, small children in Africa, for example. Um, they do not tend to forgo their mission just because COVID is around. Mm -hmm they tend to kind of step back a little bit and wait and see how it might affect their mission. So I see, depending on um, their mission statement, their vision, their origin, different behaviors. Right, right, right. And how are they sharing information, if they are, how are they sharing information between themselves, between these different funding outfits, these different organizations? Is there any platform uh, that enables one foundation to have visibility into what others are funding and maybe learn from it or or hop on on the same sort of uh, uh, trajectory? Yeah, that's uh, again a very timely question. We just went live yesterday morning with Unitus. Mm -hmm. Unitus is a coming together of the major venture philanthropy and social investment networks in Europe. Um, and we are definitely one of them and uh, we were quite um, instrumental and also an initiator of, of this coming together where we said let's just forget uh, where we come from or different member bases uh, let's join forces and let's make sure that uh, the whole venture philanthropy and social investing space can have visibility on the different actions that are going on the different initiatives that are taken and also the different requests to team up in funding, to do match funding, to connect supply and demand. So yeah, we just went live um, with Unitus uh, as a European platform um, to facilitate uh, both our member base, but as well our beneficiaries and, and, and the people in demand of, of, of resources. And uh, I mean, one of the questions that came up, which I think it was really interesting and it's it's not immediately evident, but I think the more you start drilling into this puzzle and uncharted waters that COVID-19 presents for certain organizations and you touched on liquidity or illiquidity and solvency and so forth. So you have a lot of organizations who are coming up to their financial year end and their auditors, you know, they're reviewing the organizations. And the question is whether they're going to give an organization a clean bill of health or whether it's going to be qualified accounts and so forth. And obviously, in the case of debt financing, if your auditors don't give you a clean bill of health, it has implications for whether that loan can be called back and so forth. And I'm just curious whether you're getting into that nitty gritty now, whether you're seeing any sort of impact investors that might be providing funding, uh, debt funding, uh, whether these are sort of questions that are beginning to come up as well. So I'm an investor myself. Mm -hmm. So we just had an, uh, an AGM uh, literally yesterday. Uh, EVPA is an NGO and we have our AGM the 4th of June. So yeah, I'm, I'm uh, confronted with these questions, uh, let's say on a very regular basis. Um, I don't have a full oversight of, of how the legal and tax and, and audit stuff is, is actually working, uh, Alberto, but just based on, on those couple of examples, what I see is that, uh, of course, they're closing the books of most of the time 2019, which was still sunshine and we could go anywhere. Mm. Uh, so that's not too difficult. But all of them, in all the cases I was involved, they ask a specific chapter uh, to include now in your report how you're going to deal with this COVID-19 crisis. And that's indeed where you should start making statements and should start thinking ahead while uh, situation is unclear. 
I haven't seen so far uh, auditors that didn't didn't kind of clear the accounts of 2019 because of COVID, but it's a question they explicitly ask you and you have to address it explicitly. Uh, Beto, is it fine if I quickly say something about the social investment funds? Because yeah. we've been talking about foundations and their challenges, uh, but uh, an equal part are social investment funds nowadays, and they have different challenges. The social investment funds that provide equity or subordinate loans, uh, they're a bit in a different position. Uh, they're in a different position because um, they provided equity, which is a long-term instrument, of course, by definition. And they're assessing their entire portfolio. Uh, so they go through their investees, they check their social enterprises, and they now try to assess whether they have to tweak the business model of their social enterprises. Mm -hmm. For example, myself, I'm an investor in the SI2. We invested in the UK in We Are Digital, uh, which is a major social enterprise in the UK. And they're thriving. I mean, they just go through the roof because uh, as they are digital and they try to uh, bring uh, digital skills to deprived people and all of a sudden this becomes front and center. So they are now struggling very much in how to accelerate their own team and the capacity within their team to truly serve the beneficiaries, which is a complete different other investee we have, we have in our portfolio, uh, which is suffering badly from this COVID-19 because they're much more physical, they're much more out there dealing with people in a hands-on base. And due to the lockdown, they're just cut off of their operation. So the social investors, they're now diving into the business model of their investees and try to see what is this kind of new digital reality what does it mean for my investees? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Out of your uh, your membership base, is it uh, equal split between foundations and investment funds, innovation funds, and so forth, or um, is it still mainly on the foundation side? Or no, you could say it's around a uh, fifty-fifty. We mm -hmm. have uh, you could say out of the three hundred, something like seventy, eighty social investment funds. We have around a hundred, hundred twenty uh, foundations. And all the rest are ecosystem players in the space, accelerators, academia, uh, NGOs, social enterprises and the like. Right. Do you have much engagement with academia? You mentioned academia a couple of instances. Most of the time uh, here, Alberto, we are uh, partners with uh, quite um, some universities, uh, very much in an applied way. So universities that do focus very much on uh, purely academic papers um, are less of a partner with us, but uh, universities that have a very applied approach. ESADA um, uh, in, in, in Barcelona, Erasmus in, in Rotterdam, Catolica in Lissabon, Ajussé uh, in, in Paris, those type of people uh, next to academia and uh, or academic uh, pursuit, they also have this uh, more applied um, approach. And we team up in, in applied research with them. To give you an example, uh, we just had over 2019 an in-depth research on what we call corporate social investors, which are corporate foundations and corporate social accelerators. 
and how together with their uh, allied company, their mothership, how they together pursue social benefits and social impact in society. Um, I don't know whether you're very familiar with the corporate space, but there is a whole movement going on about triple bottom line and inclusive mm-hmm. and shared value. While foundations are kind of embracing venture philanthropy and social investing, and in the end, it's bringing together from a different perspective the social business. And we did quite some research, and uh, literally in, in two weeks' time, we'll have a major paper published in the Stanford Social Innovation Review that deals with these findings. And we did that together with uh, Erasmus University in in Rotterdam. Excellent, excellent. One of the things that's been pointed out to me by by more than one CEO in this space is that despite all the turbulence and pain that COVID-19 is causing, it also presents certain opportunities for people to reinvent and innovate how things are done, how models are sort of structured. And uh, and since you're touching on academia, I would imagine also for, for, uh, for research, there's uh, a lot of insight that you'll be able to glean from this. One of the ventures, actually, I started four years ago with um, a couple of people with my former business partner and and, uh, some um, tech guys is a venture on smart glasses. Mm -hmm. Um, Very simply said, uh, the wearer of the smart glasses has two major, I would say, applications. One of them is that an expert, a remote expert, can see what the wearer of the glasses is seeing, thanks to cameras in the glasses, a wide-angle camera and a zoom camera. Um, They can talk to each other, so the expert could be virtually present, while the operator, hands-free, can still be on the job executing what he or she wants to execute. And second, the smart glasses allow very much in a small LED screen in the corner of the glasses to see in a blink of an eye uh, videos, instructions, procedures, and can talk voice controlled to the glass to feedback data, to feedback information, and hence also steer the procedure that he or she has to follow through. Mm. We started that four or five years ago. We got major funding from uh, Horizon 2020 in Europe, but on the outset, and I'll come back um, to your, your question in a minute, Alberto, but on the outset, we said, Next to business applications, you can imagine remote maintenance, remote quality control, uh, they're numerous, the examples. We said we also would like to apply it for more societal purposes. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Uh, four weeks ago, I was in Congo, literally, just before uh, the COVID crisis uh, exploded. And we are working on what we call telemedicine programs where there is a lack of good resources in the front line of the healthcare workers, but where there is good expertise in a remote area. Specifically in, in Congo, there are quite good experts, but limited, uh, like pneumologists and others, but they are all the generation scared to go into uh, the field uh, because of travel, but also because of being exposed to patients with COVID before Ebola. So the whole question is how to leverage this scarce, limited, valuable expertise so that frontline healthcare workers can deal with this. Hmm. And this now 
has accelerated in literally the last three, four weeks tremendously. And where in Belgium, telemedicine was not by government uh, acknowledged as a formal way of practice, so it was not um, was not formally recognized. So uh, GPs that were executing didn't get a reimbursement. In a week's time, after 10 years of discussion, it has been agreed they will be get reimbursed. So this is a clear example where in three weeks' time, something happens with the full consent and support of the government where we've been struggling for the last 10 years. Mm. And it would not have happened were it not for COVID-19 pandemic. Definitely not. <laughs> and tell me, so your background, you came from the private sector, you're an, an investor, and now you're running EVPA. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. And <laughs> sometimes it's confusing for myself as well. Mm. Uh, but uh, where it comes together for me, uh, let's put it this way, uh, Alberto, is where doing good and doing business coincides. Mm. So it's the coming together of bringing real societal additionality, but in a business way. And whether it's done business-led or social enterprise-led, whether it's done providing the money or building the business model or executing, I'm less uh, concerned. I'm a bit agnostic. And so that sweet spot, um, and it, it, it comes back uh, to, to, to my history. I've been uh, building my own business together with my business partner in, in, in uh, industry. Uh, we sold our business in, in 2008. Uh, but my brother uh, has been working and still is working in development economics. My sister is an Ashoka fellow working with uh, non-accompanied minors uh, dealing with psychological traumas. And um, we had so many debates about uh, you're the good guy, I'm the bad guy, and so on and so forth. And I could not never believe it. I always had this conviction and maybe I was naive, but I had this conviction there should be a sweet spot where you can do good and do business at the same time. And in 2008, we sold our business, and I thought it might be a daydream, but I've never pursued this, this reality. I will never know. So in 2011, I stepped down as CEO of, of this new company, and I left uh, the company to join Ashoka in, in Washington because I wanted to understand and learn uh, how the other side of the coin, the social entrepreneurs, were dealing with all of that. And during my time at Ashoka, I was trying to figure out, can social entrepreneurs and big businesses learn something from each other? And I could see the beginning of something that was starting. And I have to say, Alberto, since then, 2011, I came back to Europe. Since then, every year, every two years, when I look back, I've seen accelerating this field of more and more initiatives where indeed social and business, social and economics, in different perspectives, in different balances, uh, all progressing and all coming together. And I don't believe in the end that they should fully blend. Uh, I think uh, everybody still has a role to play but if I look back 10 years ago and today, I see a major difference how we perceive and think about uh, society, economics, government, 
And uh, that's where I embarked 10 years ago. That's great. So if we're looking back at 10 years, we, we know a little bit about the trajectory. What about looking forward for the next 10 years? What does success look like to you and the EVPA uh, for 2030, which happens to coincide nicely with the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals? Yeah, 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 yeah. I heard a story the other day, which I liked very much. Um, I don't know whether you know, I didn't know actually, but measuring the success of a business by looking into their financials, this is just something we do for the last 150 years. Before that, there were no accounts, regulated accounts, and those, I wasn't there of course, but what people tell me, historians tell me, is that was a big debate. Some people said, you can never ever measure the success of a business by just looking at financial numbers. That's weird. See where we are today. Everybody trusts the financial numbers. It's the metric number one about business success. The same happened a little bit, I would say, 20 to 30 years ago with risk. People said risk, it's intangible, it's difficult. But there again, we have been learning so much to kind of make it tangible, uh, have models have scenarios. And today we all talk about risk return. There is a financial return and it should be higher when the risk is higher. So we start to measure risk and we start to measure return. What I see is that a third element comes into the game, which is impact, which is societal additionality. And for sure we have the debates today. You can't measure societal impact. It's too diverse. How can you measure uh, education of a kid with providing a home for homeless. You can't compare apples and oranges. That's what I said so many years ago about risk and so many centuries ago about financial return. So I think we would make a big step forward if in 10 years' time we would not debate anymore whether impact is the third dimension, but that we are deep down in how to make it tangible and how to make it an integral part of this risk return impact dimension. Maybe last element I'd like to add is, I like to think about this whole impact journey again in three waves. First wave is the wave we know very well, which is uh, environment. Um, I've seen uh, literally uh, one of my first customers when I was still in business was a big retail company and they were putting up the first windmill and everybody said, what the heck are they doing? And at that time, it was very much like a kind of PR uh, dimension, communications uh, aspect. Hey, guys, we're doing good. We have a windmill without any economic rational. 20 years later, the same company, it's a very well-known, very big company. They are uh, carbon neutral. They have windmills, they have solar panels, they have uh, dealing with, with uh, earth warmed and everything that's related to it. So you've, we've seen that how on the fringes, like a kind of hobby, this whole environmental thing is now also uh, uh, catapulted in, into the economic space. And the whole social inclusion, the socioeconomic inclusion, I think is about 20 years uh, later than the whole environmental discussion. I see how social inclusion 
can also benefit the economics if we do it right, these discussions are happening. How taking care of our employees also in, in, in developing countries, uh, how to make sure that all your stakeholders in the neighborhood and so on and so forth, how to deal with disabled people, make them part of your economic model. All those social inclusion discussions, I can gladly see how they start to be embraced by the economic players. And so hence what I see is that social is the new green. The whole evolution and the whole learnings we've had, and we're not yet there by putting environmental and economic, not as juxtaposed, but as holistic, well, social and economics should probably to a certain extent move there as well. And my prediction, hope, is that there will be a third wave, which is the ethical wave that is gradually coming up is, yes, how do we think about tax? How do we think about these big companies that in the end only take, pay 2% of their taxes and sit on piles of cash? Do we accept that? These global companies that are kind of competing, like the Amazons and others that are competing with local players on unequal footing. I think this ethical wave will kick in as well and will be the third wave of sustainability. So environment, social and ethical for me are three waves that are kind of in cascade. Excellent. Tell me, what's a, what's a, a key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after the, uh, they finish listening to today's episode? Let me say what's on my mind the last couple of weeks. And, and, and again, it's more an observation than I have a real answer. But um, these crises, uh, these unprecedented times, uh, there are big dangers out there and there are big opportunities out there. I uh, don't know where it's going, but I can see two things. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that in times of crisis, we often tend to take measures that are not temporarily. They're there to stay. And uh, just to refer to discussion which is going on here in a couple of countries on the continent is, for example, privacy. And should we have an app that tells us uh, where we are, what we do, who we connect with, and so on and so forth. From an immediate perspective, for sure, there is a great benefit in implementing such apps. But I don't think we want to go where China is going, for example. So how to implement things that have a short-term value, but know that once they're implemented, it's very hard to kind of get rid of them afterwards. So we should be very conscious that uh, actions we take right now in times of crisis probably will be around for a much longer time. And elements we have to put into the balance. Um, and I think, um, yeah, you've probably read the article as well from Harari. Things like uh, going back to your nation while uh, yeah, some totalitarian implications come into uh, play versus uh, building on the resilience of, of citizens and trusting your citizens and building democracy from that end. These things I, I truly feel are at stake right now. So we should not take lighthearted decisions. We should take decisions. But let's hope that uh, we keep this longer term perspective of our values uh, front and center if we take short term action. Mm. A word of caution uh, in, in unprecedented times. Uh, 
Stephen, it has been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, for listening. Always very much appreciated. Please subscribe and please share widely with others as well. Stephen, really great having you on board. And I wish you success as you try to uh, steer the boat uh, with COVID-19 and also for the European Venture Philanthropy Association and, uh, and the coming 10 years at least. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to have this discussion, Roberto. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.